Hey, good morning, and welcome to Easter through YouTube. He is risen. Amen. You can respond with, He's risen indeed. I hope that you've been able to use our quarantine time for some good. Surely there must be some good coming out of this. If nothing else, that we long to be together and we can't wait to see each other. This week I read about some people in quarantine who have discovered that they have superpowers they never knew that they had. Let me share a few of my favorites with you. I have discovered I can start an argument with a single look. I can leap an afternoon with a single nap. I can disappear people with a single cough. <coughs> I've learned I can maintain six feet from my emotions at all times. And Joe Bosquez has learned that he can use the power of his mind to melt an ice cube just by looking at it. He does report it took a little bit longer than he expected though. Uh, yeah, hopefully there's some good coming out of this time together. I'll say that I've taken the time to learn a new poem. 30 days, half September, April, June, and November. All the rest have 31, excepting March, which has 3,000. Um, on the bright side, I've seen one of our parents who posted a picture of their teenagers cooking dinner together in the kitchen. And she said this would have never happened before the quarantine. I mean, there's no way they would have been laughing and agreeing and making this work. So that's a bright spot. And here's one more. I trust that by the time we're reunited together next month, you will have used your 30 plus days of quarantine well to decide where you're going to lunch on Sunday morning. No more excuses. No more I can't pick. You've got this. Figure it out. I've had some extra time to read during quarantine. And this has been a blessing to me. I've been able to read some books and, and some poetry and some articles that I probably wouldn't have gotten to during our regular work routine. This week in particular, I've had the opportunity to read some of the sermons of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German minister in the first half of the 20th century and was part of this resistance movement against Hitler and the Nazis that was called the Confessing church. So Bonhoeffer could see some of what was coming in their nation, some of the bigotry and the hatred that was on the rise, and he was trying to help call the church back to their purpose in Christ, that Christ is in us, he's our hope of glory, and that through Christ we can resist evil powers in the world, even those that might be rising up against our will when we are oppressed and when people are literally being thrown into quarantine or into concentration camps. For Bonhoeffer, this was life and death on the line. He was part of an assassination attempt on the life of Hitler and most of his life and in his writings, Bonhoeffer was a pacifist. This was excruciating for him to decide whether or not his core beliefs or trying to make some kind of measured change through an assassination in his country were the right thing to do. He, he wrote and struggled a lot with these kind of things. He wrote some of his best stuff after he was imprisoned and then moved to a concentration camp because of his resistance against the state. And 75 years ago today, which I'm recording this on Thursday morning, so April 9th, he was executed 75 years ago. So this week I've had the chance to read some of his sermons and 
I've taken my sermon text for today from the book of Colossians. He had preached several sermons from Colossians 3 when he was a guest speaker uh, at a friend's church. And so I've had the opportunity uh, in quarantine to read some of these thoughts from this deeply spiritual man who lived through difficult times and saw the hope of Christ through them. I'll share some of that as we go along today. But I'd like to start by reading from Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to have three readings today as we talk about this great little phrase in Colossians that's tied to the resurrection of Jesus. You know, I'm, I'm not actually reading the resurrection story of Jesus to you today. Instead, we're reading about the implications. What does the resurrection mean? What difference did it make anyways? Is it really changed our life? Has it really made any difference in the way we think or interact? And Paul uses this little phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I want us to unpack that today and to think about what it means and whether it has any implication in our life. So let me read from Colossians 1, 24 to 28. First, I'm going to talk about a mysterious body. And then we're going to take another reading from Colossians and we'll talk about a behind-the-scenes look at how Jesus made this body, so the making of the body. And then finally, near the end of today, we'll read one more reading from Colossians and we'll talk about a full body response to this hope that lies within us. Colossians 1, 24 to 28. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Paul wrote these words like a few of his other New Testament letters. He was imprisoned. This is quite literally a virtual presence. Paul wasn't coming through YouTube the way I am this morning or through Facebook, but he was coming through a written letter from a distance. He's separated from the people that he loves, and he says, I'm for you. I am suffering for you. I am with you in this. And he says some interesting things. I'm for you, and I'm the servant of the church. I am its servant. And he calls the church his body, the body of Christ. So I'm for you, the church, the body. I am its servant. This is a strange way to use the word body. The body of Christ used to mean the physical embodiment of the Son of God. When Peter talks about the body in which he bore our sins on the cross, he means Jesus' person his body. Later in Colossians, even Paul will refer to the, the body of Jesus. The fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, chapter 2, verse 9. But right now he's using a different take on the word body, this mysterious body. He'll call it uh, the body of Christ. 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus had talked about a seed in John chapter 12, verse 24, that unless the seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it does die, it produces many seeds. There is something mysterious that happens in the resurrection of Jesus in which what was limited before to the one body of the incarnate Son of God now has unlimited potential. That Jesus can actually be in and amongst us. This sounds so strange and mysterious, it's kind of odd to even talk about, but something broke or changed. Maybe we should say something finally came back together in the history of the universe when Jesus was raised from the dead. His seed planted in the ground, this body now becomes many bodies, and Paul says, I'm for you and I'm with you. How does Paul serve the body? And to what end or for what reason is he suffering and serving in this way? He says, I'm serving you, the body of Christ, by proclaiming the fullness of his word. Not just some of the word or a bit of word, but it's fullness. In the book of Colossians, Paul uses many times words for fullness. The Colossians seem to have these ideas or imagination that there's more out there if they could just find it. Maybe it takes some kind of spiritual secret knowledge or some arcane rituals or practices or some kind of blending of Greco-Roman and Jewish and Christian culture. Whatever it is, they seem to think that there's more. They might even be into angel worship. And for them, Paul says, what you have is the full gospel. I've proclaimed to you the full word. He will call it the mystery. And later he'll even call it the glorious riches of the mystery. He says, I've presented it, I've proclaimed it, I've disclosed it, I've made it known. He uses all these words in our reading to say, I have served you by proclaiming this gospel, sharing and preaching this word of the gospel. And what is the gospel? He sums it up in this phrase. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So two things that come together at this point. One, Paul is serving the body of Christ, which happens to be all all the people. Somehow, Jesus has been planted in all of their hearts. And yet also, the way that he serves the body of Christ is by proclaiming the body of Christ. He says, the good news is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there is this sustaining work of presenting Jesus, that by hearing that Jesus has made us his own, We become his people and we become his body. And we're sustained, we're filled, we're kept in the fullness of the word by hearing that same proclamation that you are the body of Christ, that Christ is among us. He is in our midst. He is in our hearts. And then Paul is also serving them by, he calls it, filling up in my body what is lacking of Christ's afflictions. This doesn't mean that in Christ's suffering, he didn't go far enough. It's not as if Christ needs more people to suffer to help save the world or atone for sins. This is not what Paul means at all. What he means is, in my life, I have not yet reached the fullness that Jesus did in his obedience when he suffered. At the end of this reading, verse 28, Paul says, the goal of this service to the church is to present people fully mature in Christ Jesus, to make us fully mature. And the word here in the original language for fully mature is this little adjective, teleos. 
And teleos means the end or the fullness or the perfection. For those of you who checked in and watched Good Friday together with me, we read from the book of Hebrews about a cognate word, or a, the same word really in Greek, just the verb form, in which it says Christ was made perfect through what he suffered. And that's the verb teleo-o. So we've got the verb and we've got the adjective here, but in both of them, think about these things that are coming together. Christ was already what we would call perfect in that he was sinless. But in the eyes of God, he had not yet come into his fullness or his end purpose. He hadn't been polished and finished. He put the finishing touches on what it means to be Messiah by suffering obediently. He was made perfect. And Paul here too, in his ministry to the church is saying, as we suffer in quarantine or in a Nazi concentration camp for Bonhoeffer or whatever else may come, we are being made perfect by suffering for each other as the body of Christ. We hang in here for each other. We don't give up for each other because you and I have Christ in our midst and I am going to be here for you. So I suffer obediently and lovingly towards you. If I have to write sermons and put them on YouTube for a year, I'll do it to support you and to love you. And I know you'll be writing and texting me and all the rest of the church too, because this is what we do for each other. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now let's take a second reading from Colossians. How is it that Jesus made us his body? What's the making of, the behind the scenes cut on how this happened. I'm going to read from Colossians 2, verses 9 to 15. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Wow. We could spend a lifetime unloading and unpacking that one. Christ, mighty cosmic power, itty bitty living space. He comes down into this body to be among us, to forever Mary, heaven, and earth together in his person. And, verse 10, in Christ you have been brought to fullness. And what does this mean? What does it mean that in Christ we're brought to fullness? Kind of sounds on the surface like just some Christian lingo, like trying to pump you up or some kind of self-help talk. In Christ you've been brought to fullness. But he means so much more than merely emotional encouragement here. Christ is the fullness of the deity. You don't need any other savior. You don't need any other angel or any other gospel or any other method to get God's approval. If Christ is in you, the hope of glory, you've got the fullness of God abiding. He has brought us to fullness. What this means for us Christians who believe in Jesus, put thrown our life on him, we've placed our trust in him. We never have to worry that we're lacking or missing out as far as God is concerned. As if we aren't living up or doing enough, God loves and is pleased with the son. And he loves and he is pleased with the sons and the daughters who participate in the body and the sufferings of Christ. Sure, there's repentance to be done. There is coming to full maturity to be done by learning obedience through what we suffer, but you're loved. You've come to fullness. In Christ, you've been brought to fullness. 
I'm continuing in verse 10. He is the head over every power and authority. Make note of that. Little phrase, power and authority. In him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, mark that again, the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Did you notice the the little sandwich of powers and authorities. In verse 10, Christ is the head over every power and authority. And at first we might think, well, what does he mean by that? Does he mean just governments? Does he mean elders in the church? Which secular powers, religious powers, the power plants? What is he talking about when he says powers and authorities? It turns out Paul is dealing with some of this Colossian confusion about spiritual beings and angels and so on. Whatever powers you think are out there that you need to tap into, Christ has been made their supervisor. He is the head of them. He is in charge of them. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's been raised over all spiritual powers. And this is so important because these are the powers that deceive. Verse uh, 15 says that Christ disarmed them, triumphed over them, and made a spectacle of them. This is because these are the deceiving powers. These are the powers that were killing us, that had led us to become dead in our sins. And again, especially for us modern people who think in uh, pretty scientific terms, or at least we credit ourselves with that, we don't really know what to do with the word sin, and certainly not with the idea of dark powers. But when any of us begin to think about how this works, it's pretty clear that a person serves whatever he chooses to obey. So if I dedicate myself to training in baseball or swimming or to climb a 14er in the Rockies, I put myself to serving this pursuit that I'm obeying. That might be all well and good so long as I can leave if I want to. But sometimes we become a slave to things that we did not mean to become slaves to. This is in a sense, what addiction is all about. This is what our brokenness, our incompleteness is all about. Is there are certain truths in existence that once I begin to serve them, I have trouble breaking away, whether it be alcohol or different kinds of lusts or whether it be economic or political. There are certain things that when they get into our minds and our hearts, they pull us down to earth. They keep us anchored here. We have trouble rising above the pandemic or the concentration camp because the things that we know uh, are being taken from us. We are being limited. We are being imprisoned. And this can happen in the body. This can happen in the mind. This can happen in the heart. So much brokenness of the heart in our world because we're human and we're incomplete. 
It's not really a mystery to any of us that we become slaves to things that we didn't want to be slaves to. It just may be that we don't think to call it sin or that we've heard sin used to leverage power and authority from church figures over other people so many times that we don't have any more capacity to think of it that way, which again is part of the brokenness of the powers and the authorities. But Christ had an answer. Sandwiched between this power and authorities that Christ is head over and the powers and authorities that he became head over by the cross, we find that Jesus did a work inside of us. It calls it the circumcision not done by hands, uh, not in the flesh, but that Jesus somehow removes the false self. All of these pretentious ideas, all of these identities that we have built around ourselves, our art and our culture, our appearance, our abilities, our resume, all of the things in our trophy case, everything that we have built to make and present a person or a life, Jesus strips away to find at the middle the person made in the image of God that is loved and valued from eternity and into eternity. And in this person, when Jesus strips off all of this outer identity, it's like a cutting away. It happens because we join Christ through faith in his death and resurrection. We believe, along with Jesus, that God is doing a work in us. We participate through obedience with Jesus in baptism. And Paul says we die in that moment. We die somehow to ourselves, but we're raised with him through faith in God's resurrection work. We learn not to trust the false self, not to trust the false identity, but the God who loves us in his fullness. We are brought to fullness through Jesus Christ. It says God made you alive with Christ. And then it says he forgave our sins. It describes it this way. The charge that was made against us was canceled, taken away, and nailed to the cross. These powers that keep us oppressed keep us oppressed by charging us. They tell us we're not worthy. They tell us we're broken. They tell us we will never measure up. They remind us that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They remind us that we are imperfect. They remind us of the broken relationships in our past, the addictions in our present, the fears in our future, and they hold us down by the charges that they make against us. Paul says that what Jesus does in the resurrection is he buys the whole prison complex. He comes in and in one move with the cross, Jesus captures the whole prison where we have been kept by the powers. And from the powers, he takes their worst blow, death. They do their very worst, the worst threat they have, they do their very worst to Jesus. And they can't keep him down. And when Jesus rises, he is made king of kings, lord of lords. He's made head over every power in the universe. All are submitted to him. And then Jesus cancels the charges. He rips them up, nails them to the cross, does away with them. They're canceled. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Can you feel hope rising? One more part for us to look at today is how we step into a full body response 
to this great news about what Jesus has done. It's wonderful to be called the body of Christ, and it's comforting and helpful to know how Jesus made us his people. But what do we do with this? Is it really even possible for us to begin living in a way that is Christ in you, the hope of glory? Or is tomorrow really just a repeat of yesterday? Is every day in quarantine Groundhog Day? Are you and Bill Murray basically just waking up and repeating endlessly the same thing over and over? And even after quarantine is done, are you repeating the same struggles, the same fears, the same inadequacies, the same letdowns over and over and over? Or is it possible to live with Jesus in this forgiveness of sins, in this new life, with the hope of glory? This last reading helps us with this a little bit. But this, this is going to hit each of us in different ways based on where God has put us, what he's called us to, and what he's prepared us to be. Our brothers and sisters in Mexico and in other Spanish-speaking countries have received this news of coronavirus a little differently than we have. In Spanish, the word for crown is corona. So uh, we maybe only know the word corona as being uh, the beer or the kingdom uh, in the movie Tangled that I mentioned a few weeks ago where Rapunzel lives. But for our Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters, when they hear coronavirus, they hear the word crown, the crown virus. And they have developed this little saying. I've seen some of our friends posting on Facebook that uh, la corona de espinas es más fuerte del coronavirus. Translation, the crown of thorns is stronger than coronavirus. Isn't that beautiful. But this comes to them because of the language in which they're situated. And God speaks to you words of hope through lighthearted memes, through letters from Christians, through scripture verses, through songs of worship that come to each of us based on where he's called us to be and who he's prepared us to be. So I'm going to read this scripture reading but I'm trusting you to be doing the work with me, to be looking for the Christ of glory here, to be looking for what God is telling you about how you live into and step into these promises. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Let me deal with a little technical issue here. A lot of our translations say, if then you've been raised with Christ. This is a pretty well understood a Greek conditional statement that expresses zero doubt. This is a first-class conditional statement in Greek. It does not mean if you were raised with Christ and there's some doubt that you are. It means since you were raised with Christ. Since then, there's no doubt that you've been raised with Him because you, having died with Him, are also raised with Him. God doesn't leave you in the grave. God doesn't leave you in the pit. God doesn't start a circumcision and fail to finish it. God doesn't leave you in the waters of baptism. What God does through your faith is He raises you with Christ. So since then, you've been raised with Him. Set your hearts on things above. And He'll, he'll say in a second here, set your minds on things above. So we've got this multiple parts of our being, our intentional thinking and our center of feeling and emotions set above. Set your hearts on things above, 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. That's where the powers want you to stay. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. To say that you have been raised with Christ sounds like crazy talk. I mean, people don't talk this way. They don't live this way. They don't act this way. I'm not sure anybody would even really know what to say if we began talking about how we're already raised with Christ. We're already raised with Christ. Since we're raised with Christ, this doesn't seem to be the way we actually go about life day in and day out. What does this mean? You see, what we tend to do is we separate everything else in life out from this kind of a truth. So we go to work and we live as if everything depends on making the deal. We go to church and we act as if everything depends on somebody welcoming me into their small group or their class. We go about doing our business in town, our shopping and so on, acting and thinking as if everything matters, that we get the best deal possible as soon as we want it and stay fashionable as long as possible, keep our body attractive as long as possible, that we find the medicine or the cure as soon as possible, These are the ways that we live and function. And we don't live and function as if, well, I'm already raised with Christ. When we walk past each other in church so many Sunday mornings, do you look in the eye of another across from you and say, there is a son of God raised in Christ with glory? I'm sure that I fail to do it. Not sure I'm even capable or up to the task of doing it. If Christians really thought this way, if Paul means what he wrote, if the early church lived and thought and talked this way, then we now must be impoverished. We must be missing out. We have suffered some huge losses. If the church used to look each other in the eye and think, there's a daughter of God raised with Christ in glory, We must have suffered some huge losses along the way. There's a couple of ways we can go about this. Trying to regain this perspective. Trying to center it and ground it in our hearts so that along with Paul and along with Jesus, we can look at each other and we can look at ourselves in the mirror and we can go about our work and our play having this deep abiding faith that whether my life is going well or poorly, whether I'm Uh, sick or whether I'm in health, whether I've made money or lost money, that I'm raised with Christ and my future and in fact my present are secure. There's two inferior ways and, and one right way or best way for us to think about this. One of the inferior ways is probably the one we're living in day in and day out. We just look at life around us and we take it at face value. We're pretty knowledgeable, we're pretty scientific, we treat things pretty empirically, so we want evidence. We need to be making gains day in and day out, but eventually this leaves us empty. Eventually we see that if this is not a God-soaked world, if it's just a purely scientific world and just a world of reason and just a world of empirical evidence and just do the best you can and get as far as you can, that eventually we experience total loss. That when we do die, we drink, as Bonhoeffer called it in his sermons, 
the cup of nothingness. And once we stare into that existential problem, that void and that darkness for so long, we can't handle it. So sometimes what we do is we revert then to another option, another inferior way that sounds better but truly isn't. The other way that we revert to is using religious language. Uh, but we use harmless language. We talk about doing things just in God's name, but we aren't actually changing any of our practices. We're still acting like empirical evidence and reason and knowledge and science are all that really matter, and we code it in this little baptism of God language. What we're doing is this harmless inoculation. We're choosing middle ground where what we want is to be raised with Christ and to have our life hidden with Christ in God, but we don't want the middle piece. We don't want this little middle message that says, you are raised with Christ. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God, but you died. And that's the part we leave out. This is then the third way or the middle way the true way of experiencing Christ in you, the hope of glory, is embracing this little phrase, you have died. This is the key. Finally, admitting and understanding our utter weakness, our dependency on the powers, our slavery to our lusts and desires and even just our preferences. And so, by faith, finding God, that it is God who comes to us and says, don't you see that living this way, you're as good as dead. If this is all your life is built on, you're as good as dead. And we finally recognize it, we finally confess it, we finally repent, we cry out to God, I am dead here. I am dead. My, my life is going nowhere. There's nothing in this for me. And then we realize in this moment that it is God who has brought this message to our hearts. And so he is already with us. That at the moment we realize we are nothing, we're, we're falling apart into nothingness, we're drinking the cup of nothingness, that it is God who has come to us with the message. It's the Spirit who convicts the world of sin and of righteousness. And if God is present, there's hope. And if God is present, there's already salvation, his inseparable love has come to us to convince us that we are dead. And in understanding that and admitting it, we come alive with Christ. We choose to obey Christ. We begin to follow after the way of Jesus, stepping into the kingdom of God. And he does the circumcision on our hearts. We die with him. We're raised with him. I want to read a couple quotes from Bonhoeffer to finish this morning from a sermon that he gave about uh, 12 years before he was hung in the Nazi concentration camp. The apostle wants to tell us this incomprehensible, wonderful message. You have died. He doesn't say that to us to torture us not to cast us into despair, but simply and only because he can say in the next breath, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We've not been left alone in all of our lostness. Instead, there is one who has stepped across the boundary. 
that separates us from the Creator and from true life. He has broken into our territory of death, has tasted all our living and our dying to its deepest depths. Remember, fullness is in Him. And He has still broken through this death, broken through to the Eternal Father, to eternal life where he's seated at the right hand of God and he's pulled up the whole world with him to life and into the light. He's swallowed up death and victory, has taken over the whole prison captive and brought us freedom, the glorious freedom of the children of God. And we don't pretend that we understand all of this. We do not pretend that we understand all of the mysteries of what it means that in our dying we find true life. That as the seed dies, it actually multiplies into far more life than it had ever contained before. We don't pretend that we understand the glorious mystery, Christ in you, that we're the body of Christ, but as Bonhoeffer says, this isn't a thing of understanding. This isn't a thing of explaining. Christ came into the world not so that we would understand Him, but so that we would cling to Him, so that we would hold on to Him. Bonhoeffer pleads. Paul pleads. I plead with you. The Spirit of God in your heart pleads with you. Don't pretend you understand Him. Cling to Him so that we simply let Him pull us into the unbelievable event of the resurrection, so that we simply have it said to us, said to us in all its incomprehensibility, you have died, and yet you have been raised. You are in the darkness, and yet you are in the light. You are afraid, and yet you can be glad. Our lives do not have to come to ruin, no matter how high or how low they may be, how well off or how poor, how long or how short, our lives do not have to come to the cup of nothingness. Instead, in Christ, nothing is in vain. No tear, no sigh, no separation, no time of quarantine, no time of restoration, no joy, no reward. Nothing in Christ is ever in vain. God gathers it up into his hidden world where our true life is hidden there with Christ in God. And when Christ, your life, appears, when he returns in his full-bodied glory, then you too will appear with him in glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We love you, church, so much. I know we all miss being together. We can't wait until our time of reunion. And I know that there are fears and there's anxieties and there's stresses. None of these are in vain. None of these are a loss when we understand that in our dying, He is perfecting us. He's putting the polish on. He's making us mature. And together, we're stepping into the fullness of Christ. Amen.